Well, welcome, friends. We're delighted to see you here. Um, I am the head of the Neblet family, but there would be no family. Father's Day just passed. There would be no family if there wasn't anyone with me. Um, and I'm very delighted that I have my bride with me here, Maria, and our three young people. Uh, there are four young people in my family, uh, young adults, young adults, four young adults, but uh, one of them is now a part of another family, and so we have adopted him as a part of our family as well, so we say we have five people in our family, and uh, they, she now lives with her husband in Oklahoma. So uh, we'll talk a little bit more about their story in the next breakout session, uh, but our session today is uh, always ready for family, being ready for family. And Sean is going to begin our session this morning, uh, and uh, our message this morning is entitled, Prepared to Seek. So shall we bow our heads as we pray? Heavenly Father, we're just so thankful for the opportunity that you give us to be here today, to share together from our hearts, and we ask that you will teach us what we need to know. For we desire to have families that are modeled after heaven, and we want to be able to enter those pearly gates with our families. And so, Lord, teach us what we need to know, that we are ready to go home with you when you come in the clouds of glory as a family. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, always ready for family. The word ready implies a, a certain level of preparation, yes? Uh, preparation without which any dreams of success are, are just a phantom. And so we're talking about being always ready, always prepared. But the, the theme of this conference is always ready, not always preparing. So as we are... Um, as we're going through this, what we're going to do is, is briefly and hopefully clearly assert uh, some foundational principles. And then as we go along, we're going to build on this foundation to explore the tangible reality of how these principles are applied in real life. So um, as we seek to interweave the concepts of preparation, the process of preparation and the, the concept of being ready right now, not at some, some point in the future. As we do that, we're going to establish this morning five critical elements that are absolutely necessary to, for our future happiness and usefulness, not only as uh, individuals, but as families. So um, in, this, in this starting section, we're going to dive into the, the, the present practical, um, you know, the in the starting segment, we're going to dive into the principles. In coming segments, we'll dive more into the, the practical application, um, as Father mentioned a moment ago. So this, this seminar this morning is, um, this segment of the seminar is entitled, Prepared to Seek Fundamental Foundations to Build in Your Youth. Matthew 6 holds a very common, very well-known uh, principle and passage that I think we're all familiar with. And that is this. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added. Which, which says to me something very important. 
everything that we Everything that we desire, everything that we pursue, our quest for readiness, our pursuit of heaven, our desire to bless and heal, uh, our desire to, to give, to live fully alive, to be a blessing, all of those things start in one place. And that place is with um, the seeking of heaven. Of nothing else in the universe can it be more truly said if you don't have it, or in this case, if you don't have him, if you don't have Christ... We don't have anything. So to find anything good, we start by seeking Christ. Over and over again, the writers of Scripture, the lessons of history, nature itself, they trumpet this charge in our hearing. Seek God first and always. And without this foundation, everything else is basically useless. So what we're going to cover in this first hour is the preparation of seeking the foundation of that seeking Christ, that seeking God, that seeking righteousness plays in our readiness to be all that God wants us to be. Um, <clears throat> I want you to open your scripture, if you have scripture with you, to Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 36. This little passage of scripture is going to serve as kind of our blueprint for the next hour, um, our outline if you will, Mark chapter 8, 34 through 36. And we'll just read by, uh, begin by reading it together, and then we'll kind of, we'll start breaking it down into pieces. Mark chapter 8, 34 through 36, and it reads, When he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and for the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Now, I find something very interesting about this passage of Scripture. Before the very first imperative, which is, let him deny himself, there is a very vital implication. Whosoever will come after me. In that <clears throat> coming, in that implication, whosoever will come after me. This is who we're talking about in this verse. I, I also see a command. Come after me. My question is why? Why come after him in the first place? And I think that this lies at the very foundation of um, of the, the, the process that we want to go through, the reasoning process that is laid out in this scripture. So I want to start by telling you a story, a true story. Um, it's a story that I love. It's a story about a beautiful girl, at least he thought so. She was his companion through thick and thin. She was the best in her class, smart, alert, educated, dedicated, unwaveringly Determined, and they made a winning team. She with her senses, he with his training, together a weapon of war. He was a soldier, she was a German shepherd. And the two of them were on assignment in Vietnam, and they spent their days either patrolling the perimeter of the base or sniffing out snipers or you name it, as soldiers and their dogs do. But one day on patrol, no, one day on patrol, often on patrol, daily on patrols. The two of them would be out 
uh, walking jungle trails, the dog would often stop dead in her tracks and soldier instantly responsive to the cue would stop as well. And, and the dog would put her nose to the earth and sniff and, and search until she found the thread, the filament, often the, a tripwire to a mine that was as fine as dental floss. And he would get on his hands and knees till he found it. And the, and the two of them together would go over, under, around, whatever was required. And time and time and time again, the dog saved the soldier's life. That was the way she did. And over and over again, he, through his understanding of tactics, um, saved the dog, guarded the dog from enemy fire. And the two of them made a team. The two of them made a team, but there came a day when the dog... There came a day when the man on patrol, the soldier on patrol, his footfall found a pressure cap and the dog and the man were both thrown in a ball of fire. And how long he'd been there, he did not know. But when he started to regain his consciousness in the fog of of the blackness slowly creeping away, his first thought was of guess who? Of his dog. Is she okay? Well, he didn't have long to wait to answer that question because as, he, as his eyes cracked open, the first sight he saw was the face of his dog. Leaning over, looking into his, looking into his, his, his eyes with, um, with, a, with an expression that only, that only a dog can give. And at, at, all at once his heart leapt because yes, she was alive. But then a moment later, a second thought followed hot on its heels as he looked down and he saw what he should never have seen, where used to be his uniform. Now he could see one of his lungs and one of his arms was um, mangled, almost completely gone. And the thought that followed hot on the heels of where is my dog? Is she okay? Is I'm going to die here. And another thought followed hot on the heels of that thought. And that was she must not Watch me die. And so, this soldier, gripped with a, with a determination that watching him die would not be the last gift he gave to his friend, he, he mustered all of the strength he could and commanded the dog to go home. And the dog stared at him as if to say, are you crazy? But the dog was an obedient dog. And as soldier repeated the command, go home, the dog turned and walked away a dozen paces, then hesitated and turned and came back. And the, and the, the, the soldier repeated the charge with more fervency, with more, uh, with more strength, go home. The dog turned again, walked five or six paces, and returned again. And finally, the, the Marine raises one, the one unmangled arm, strikes the dog with, that was his friend. And with all the strength he can muster, through grinding teeth, says, go home. And she does, but only one or two paces. And then she returns and lies down by the side of her dying friend, as if to say, I'm not going home without you. 
what happens when you, when you put love against love? You know what I'm saying? In this case, um, yeah, who wins? Who wins? In this case, the dog won. Because as if suddenly gripped by a new thought, she jumped up, reached down, and in her strong jaws took what was left of the collar of the soldier that was her friend and planted all four feet. And he got the idea and raised one unmangled arm, threw it around her neck, and she planted four feet and tugged and dragged the soldier that was three times her weight to the road where he was found alive. In English, we have a word for that. That word is devotion. A lifetime later, when this man with gray hair is telling the story, tears are still streaming down his face as he, as he um, talked of how he was flown to Thailand for emergency surgery, talked of of how his disconsolate dog had walked around, nay, run around the army base the entire afternoon looking for his friend. And the commander had seen it and said, aha, this must be so-and-so's dog. Put the dog on the next helicopter to Thailand. And how the dog had run through the halls of the hospital, found the soldier's bed and jumped up to rest her paws on the rail to reach for his face. And with a broken voice, the white-haired man the right-haired soldier, now an old man, asked the question, how do you thank a dog that saved your life? So the first of the five pillars that we're going to talk about today is just this one. Write it down. Devotion. Why come after him anyway? Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself. Why come after him anyway? We love him because... He first loved us. There is a simple answer. There is the simple answer. Because it is Christ that stands over me when I've made a misstep. And I slowly awaken to the fact that I'm going to die here. Because when I try to send him away, he tells me and tell him he deserves so much better that I was the one that got us into this fix in the first place. He looks down and says, I'm not going home without you. One look into those eyes is all that is required for love to spring up in return. My question is, do we dare look into his eyes in the first place? Devotion to God paves the way for a relationship with God. And that relationship informs, defines, and refines every other element of life. So this is the first foundation for us to build in our youth a vibrant relationship with God fed by habits of faithful prayer and study that we might see him in his beauty, that we might see him as he truly is. So the first of five pillars was devotion. The second one that I'd like to talk about for a few minutes here is surrender. If we turn back to our passage in Mark chapter 8, See, I have it here. The very next part of the scripture, uh, in verse 34, when it says, what, Whosoever will come after me, that's what Sean discussed, let him deny himself. There's, there's two things. If we want to follow Christ, if we want to come after Christ, the scripture points to two things. Deny himself and take up his cross. I want to focus on the first. Deny himself. And my question is, what does it really mean 
to deny yourself. And then if we understand what it means to deny yourself, why is the command there? Why is it necessary to deny ourselves? In uh, the Strong's, in commenting on that verse, the, the definition, you could say, of deny is to disown, reject, or refuse. That sounds like some pretty strong language, right? To deny means to reject, to disown, or to refuse. How do you do that to oneself? In each of our lives, we are, we are run, we are motivated um, by one of two masters. And we all know this, we've, we've heard this nomenclature throughout our, our, all of our lives. But the truth is, there is either, we're either being run by that big, fat, oppressive ruler that the Bible calls the flesh or the old man, or we, our lives are run by God, right? And so in each of our lives, there is, as, as it were, if you will, with me, there is a throne set. And there's only, only one of those two rulers can sit on that throne at once. If our flesh is in charge of our life, if our fresh flesh is sitting upon that throne, God cannot reign there. If God is sitting upon that throne, the flesh cannot reign there. Now, I want you to turn with me really quick. Um, in your Bibles, if you have them, to Romans chapter 8. And let's read really quickly Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 8. Starting verse 6 of chapter 8, it says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity, is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, in this passage, Paul presents both the problem and the answer to that problem. It is truth that to be carnally minded means that, that we can have nothing to do with that, that God is not in charge of our lives. Because the flesh and God cannot coexist together. But to deny oneself practically means... To, to lay aside, to reject, to refuse, to disown that, that carnal ruler in our lives and to allow God to give us that spiritual mind, that spiritual power. And in reality, this process of denying oneself is, is a process of faith. Because we need to, to accept the facts that God has, has given us, the promises that are in the scripture, when he promises that we can have victory over sin, when he promises that he can en empower us to have, um, to have power over our adversary and that he can rule in our lives, that we can remain and abide in him and he can give us power over temptation. This is what it really means to deny yourself. This is the process of surrender. And you know that, the, that, that when, we, when we choose to allow God to rule in that director chair of the Joshua life, the, the, the flesh will continually be clamoring for attention. Saying, what about me? Don't you remember? Don't you need me to solve this problem? 
But friends, the process of denying ourselves is to, by faith, to look to God and to say, no, I do not need to consult the, to consult the flesh. God needs to be the director of my life. You know, we attribute a lot to grace. You've heard the saying, we owe it all to grace. And fundamentally, I agree with that premise. If it were not for grace, nothing spiritually would be possible. Sanctification would not be possible. Victory over sin would not be possible. The love of God would not be possible because, friends, we do not deserve the love of God. We do not deserve all of the unmerited gifts that he gives us. However, grace is not the only ingredient. Because God has given us the power of choice. It's a very small thing, but yet it's a very large thing. Because you see, God has instilled into us the power to take the very first step to him. And no one in this entire world, not even God himself, will force us to take that step. Once we, have, once we have chosen to take that first step towards God, once we have chosen to get up off of that throne in our lives and allow God to rule there, then it is grace that covers us. It is God that transforms the life. It is not our own actions that transform the life. But yet God has instilled us with that power to choose. In fact, that's what, what one of the things that differentiates God from our enemy, from the enemy, our adversary. Because you see, when it is the devil's desire that when we sit down on the throne of our lives, when we sit down and we are governing our lives to keep us shackled there. And he doesn't want to give us the choice. In fact, if we don't choose, in effect, it is choosing for the devil. Okay, so the, the devil doesn't, doesn't really want to give us that liberty to choose. However, God, God wants to rule in our lives. But he will not force us. He gives us the power to choose him. And if at any time we say, you know what, God, I would rather govern my life. I would rather make the, the choices now, the decisions. He will, of course, with tears in his eyes, get up from that chair and allow us to run our lives. Friends, that is love. But we need to realize that the power lies within ourselves to take that first step towards God. You know, there's this amazing uh, quote that I encountered in Child Guidance, page 223. I'd like to read it for you really quick. There's actually three quotes. This first quote is in Child Guidance, page 223.2 and point three. It says, Enlisting the power of the will, the true object of reproof is gained only when the wrongdoer himself is led to see his fault and his will is enlisted for its correction. When this is accomplished, point him to the source of pardon and power. Now, here it comes here. Those who train their pupils to feel that the power lies in themselves to become men and women of honor and usefulness will be the most permanently successful. Wow. That the power lies within themselves. Now, are we talking about, like Sean mentioned this morning, pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps? No. Because no amount of actions, no amount of, of energy and um, No amount of effort on our part will ever get us to heaven. It will never save us. It will never give us the gift of sanctification. Only God will. However, it is that first step towards God. It is that choosing to, to remove our natural 
carnally minded flesh that rules our hearts, that tries to keep us back, shackled to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. It is that choice to allow God to reign in our lives instead that is ours to make. I want to read you two more quotes that are, that are really beautiful promises before we read a, a, a scripture. The first one is, um, again in Child Guidance, page 209.3, and it says, Everyone may place his will on the side of the will of God, may choose to obey him, and by thus linking himself with divine agencies, he may stand where nothing can force him to do evil. In every youth, every child lies the power by the help of God to form a character of integrity and to live a life of usefulness. The second quote is in Acts of the Apostles, page 299.1, and it says, The surrender must be complete. Every weak, doubting, struggling soul who yields fully to the Lord is placed in direct touch with agencies that enable him to overcome. Heaven is near to him, and he has the support and help of angels of mercy in every time of trial and of need. Friends, God has promised. God has promised that if we take him, if we accept the promises that he has given us, given us, if we accept abiding in him, we can become impervious to the temptations of the devil. Christ tells a parable, a story to his disciples. It can be found in the book of Luke, chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, um, starting in verse 16. Christ is sitting sitting, uh, down to eat with them, and he says in verse 16, A certain man made a great supper and bade many and sent his servant at supper to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuses. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground. I must needs go and sell it and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said unto him, Unto his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor and the maimed, and the halt and the blind. Now, my question is first. It seems like, as we're, we're looking at this story, we can see exactly where Christ is going. This good man prepares a supper, and he's already invited all of his friends, and he sends his servant to go and tell them, it's time. And they are valuing their things? A cow? Really? Family above the invitation of their master. And because of that, they were passed by. They did not attend the, the, uh, the feast that this man, this great feast that this man had prepared. Now, I have to ask myself, how many times do I do the very same thing? You know, God daily invites me to, fe- to feast at his feet. God daily invites me to spend time in communion with him. And do I, because of of my busyness, pass him by? Do I say, I cannot come? You know, I live a busy life. (laughs) I think that all of us 
would say that if we were asked. We all live a busy life. This, the, today in today's society, everybody seems to be busy. Everybody's rushing around, has plenty of things to do. We, um, we have a ministry, we travel around, we speak. I'm a student. And, um, and then I have many, well, I work. And then I have many different diverse volunteer uh, responsibilities, including I'm the assistant service director of our volunteer ambulance service in our, our community. And when we get toned out in an ambulance call, which could be at any time of the day, that automatically means six hours of my day gone because we live like two hours or an hour from the closest hospital, two hours from the closest, more reputable hospital. And with all of these things on my plate, when, when I'm in the middle of my day, I have chosen practically what God has called to my heart to do when, when he says, I want, I, I want to be able to rule your life. I want to be able to sit on that throne in your life if you'll let me. And I've chosen every day at noon to, to spend time with God in communion and prayer. Now, practically where this choice comes down for me, where, where I need to make the choice, that first step towards God, is when noon rolls around and I'm in the middle of, of studying managerial accounting and I have 20 pages left on this chapter and I know that directly after lunch I'm going to have to work for a couple hours and then I have to go to, to uh, town for an ambulance meeting, yada, 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 etc., etc. At that time when my God is bidding me, come with me, feast with me, the feast is ready, it is prepared. Do I say, Lord, I have 20 pages of managerial accounting. I cannot come. Mercy. Somehow these men in this story, in Luke, and sometimes I myself, we value our own plans, we value family, possessions, whatever it may be in your life, in my life. Do we value those more than we value God? Somehow do we think that we're actually going to receive fulfillment from these things? We're going to be fulfilled by family. We're going to be fulfilled by a cow. Friends, we were never meant to be fulfilled by loving things or people as dear as they may be. We were created to be fulfilled by a relationship with God. By spending that time with God, denying ourselves and allowing God to be the ruler of our lives. Denying myself deliberately means, or rather denying myself, means deliberately rejecting my natural self and being willing to give up my, my, my dreams and my plans and my puny little human love and accepting God's life. Accepting God's goals, God's possessions, and God's majestic ocean of unending divine love. That's what it really means to deny myself. And friends, any, any amount of labor, any amount of, of conflict or struggle that it might take to achieve that is well worth that privilege. So he that would follow me. I have chosen to follow Christ. Have you chosen to do that? Yes. You are here. And I have chosen that I want to live a life of devotion to Him. 
as that dog was devoted to that soldier, I have chosen. I'm inspired to be devoted to Christ. And so I'm learning to deny myself moment by moment on a daily basis and to take up my cross. Let me tell you what that means to me. In taking up my cross to follow him, I embrace everything that exalts Christ in my life. And I forsake everything that makes them decrease, that makes them dwindle in my life. When, when I take up my cross, it necessarily involves a separation from the world because you don't see the world picking up their cross to follow Christ, do you? What we see in the world is men and women and boys and girls who are choosing to follow their own inclination. And the end result is very sad. So separated from the world we must be in light of everything that we see happening in our modern culture. Our culture, friends, has been deteriorating at an alarming rate. Biblical and traditional values have been discarded as an old worn-out garment. Immorality runs rampant everywhere we look. Our senses are constantly bombarded by images of immodesty that are boldly portrayed in billboards, on books, magazines, TV, and the Internet. It is highly difficult, if not impossible, only possible by the grace of Christ to um, remain pure as an adult, as a young adult, as a child. It is extremely difficult to remain pure. Purity of thought, which leads to purity of life, does not happen without a great deal of intentionality in our culture. Nine years ago, and some of you have, have heard me share this illustration, nine years ago, we were um, at a shopping mall in Albuquerque. And because we live, uh, for the past 14 years, we have lived in such a sheltered country environment, which has been a huge blessing, the senses of our then 13-year-old girl were so shocked, were so offended by the images that she saw portrayed at the mall that she turned to me and she said, Mom, let's never come to the mall again. And I want to ask you a question. Are your senses offended? Are they shocked as you see those images? And do you turn away from them in horror knowing that your purity is being destroyed? Or are we desensitized, friends? Our culture is drenched with humanism, a worldview or philosophy that in one way or another divorces God from his universe. It makes man's happiness, human achievement, comfort, and con convenience the main goal of life, leaving God our God out of the picture. The institutions of our land are established on the foundation of this humanistic philosophy. Even our schools do not escape these influences altogether. 
although I'm confident and thankful that those running this particular institution are jealous for the honor of God. It's, it's, a, it's a joy to see evidence of that and invested in not compromising the truth as it is taught to our young people who receive their education here. But this highly secular humanistic society has affected us and is affecting us every day in various ways. Our knowledge of God is distorted. Our discernment is diminished. Our sensitivity to the spirit is dulled. Our values are corrupted, reflecting more the values, reflecting more clearly the values of our godless society than the biblical values that are the safeguard of our happiness. We often fail to discern right from wrong. We can be worldly and not even know it ourselves because the world as a mighty rushing river is flooding our souls continually. No one is immune to these influences and dangers, not even in conservative Christian homes such as ours. We don't have to go looking for sin, friends. Sin comes looking for us. The devil puts it in our path. For instance, you don't have to go to Google and put in the word pornography to encounter what that is. Nine years ago, three of our four children were exposed to it innocently by stumbling into it because of a new laptop that we had just purchased and were putting to work. And that became a, a greater stumbling block to one of those three children until that child chose to come and confide in us. I'm painting a very sad picture of our culture with its deteriorating norms and values. But I invite you to reflect on this and make it personal to you. Think about it. What is it that has shaped or is shaping right now your values and your standards? What determines the way that you dress, the way that you eat, the choice of music that you listen to, the books that you read, or the educational options that you pursue? Is it your personal inclination? Is it your taste, your appetite? Is it your desire, your inclination to fit in, to want to fit in with others? Is it the standard of living that you want to achieve? Or is it the Word of God and your recognition that you are not your own? You've been bought with the price and therefore your ultimate purpose is the glory of God the development of Christian character and the advancement of the interests of the kingdom of heaven in your own life, in your own heart, in your own home, in the life of your family, within your sphere of influence. How is a Christian supposed to survive in this godless environment? We first need to become wide awake Christians. We need to recognize Satan's subtle grip on ourselves and our families. If you have your Bible, turn to Romans 13. And we're going to be reading verses 11, 12, and 14. 
Romans 13, 11, 12, and 14. And it states, and that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Verse 14, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Friends, we need to repent of our own spiritual blindness and our conformity to the world and be willing to walk in those old paths that Jeremiah spoke, spoke about in Jeremiah 6.16. We need to individually go to the Lord and ask the Lord how he would have us cast off the works of darkness in our own lives. I don't know what, ex what influences you are exposed to, what sin you may be holding on to in your life, but God knows. The works of darkness creep into our lives in various ways. I know a lady that uh, would counsel with me over the years. She and her family, her husband and her children would attend camp meeting, family camp meeting every year because she had a deep desire to, to raise a family for Christ, to see spiritual growth in her children, to see a growing love for God in all of their hearts. And we know that only by a willingness to separate from the world and deliberately go counterculture, can we have that abundant life that is promised to us? Well, in her case, she told me one of their downfalls was TV. They still had not given it up altogether. And every year they went to camp meeting, they would listen and they would be inspired, they would be encouraged and they would make a fresh decision that they were going to go back home and they were not going to turn on that TV anymore. My thought was, why don't you get rid of it altogether rather than keep the temptation there all the time. Nevertheless, um, she said, you know, we come back and we do it. We just get rid of it. Uh, we just don't, you know, we, we do other things. But there was something that was driving them back to that each time. They had a friendship. They had a friendship with another family. And my friend and her husband um, found best friends in that other husband and wife of that other family. And often they would get together on Sabbath after church. They would go and spend time in each, each other's homes. And these friends of theirs had a habit of um, enjoying watching movies on Saturday night. And so, um, the lady that was sharing this with me um, would tell me, and, and you know, I think that there are wholesome movies that are okay to watch. So she would try to influence her friend in the choice of movies that they, that they would um, make. But oftentimes, either the choice had been made, and the point was that they would end up watching a movie on Saturday night, which would whet their appetite for the TV back at home. So friends, in this case, my friend, this lady, 
was allowing this friendship, this love for that couple to be the influence in the world, the work of darkness that would creep into her life, into the life of her husband and take away the convictions and the decisions that they were doing to take up their cross and follow Christ. Friends, our lives need to practically speaking, reflect the conviction that this world is not our home. We are only pilgrims here. We're not here um, to please ourselves. We're looking for new heavens and a new earth that God, God's word promises us in Revelations 21. We're not looking to fit in to this culture. We're not expecting to enjoy the, the worldly advantages that conformity to the world may yield. Our homes need to be a haven, a refuge, a place where we build a holy culture, a place where the world and its influences and its practices are intentionally shut out. And faith is a reality, and it is the substance of things hoped for. Our homes need to be a place where faith is constantly nurtured and encouraged. For our children, for instance, by the love of God, we need to be speaking about the love of God by joyful praise, by the songs of Zion, and most of all, by the word of God. Because we're told in Romans 17, 10, 17, that faith cometh, how? Faith cometh by hearing. We need to close the windows of the soul earthward, and we need to open those windows heavenward. God wants our families to taste the joy of a vibrant, happy life that is connected to him that, and that is therefore abounding in love, joy, and peace, even in the midst of trials. He wants our young people to know from personal experience what brings true and lasting joy. Our family has tasted those pleasures. And our young people know that the pleasures of the world apart from God have nothing to offer. They only result in disillusionment and a lack of joy and peace and bondage to the enemy and broken pieces. If the Spirit is bringing conviction to you of specific ways in which you or your children need to separate from the world. You can't just grit your teeth and do the hard thing and take the initiative to eliminate that from your life and your children's lives without paying attention to the replacement principle. As we take things away from our children because we come under conviction, it will leave a void in their lives that the devil will be very earnest to fill in their lives if we don't replace that with what is wholesome, with what is good and edifying. Remember the parable of the unclean spirit in Matthew 12, um, 43. That unclean spirit that went out of the man and went wandering about and found no rest. And so he returned later, and it says that finding the house empty, swept and garnished, he took possession of it along with seven other spirits. 
Ellen White commenting on that says that it is not enough that the vessel be empty. It is not enough that we make a conscious choice to abandon those things that are undermining our spirituality. It must be filled. Our vessels must be filled with the grace of Christ. So ask the Lord for wisdom to replace those things that you deny yourself for the sake of taking up your cross and following Christ. Replacing them with things that will heighten your joy and your fulfillment in the Christian life. Friends, by our submission to God, by parental wise leadership in our homes, we can make the Christian life so attractive to our children, so attractive for our young people that they will turn away from the broken cisterns of worldly pleasures because they have tasted the sweet water from the fountain of living water. So as we are talking about the different principles, whosoever will come after me let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Why are we discussing all this in you know, a seminar that's supposed to be about family? Well, in reality, if you think about it, the, the, the next session we're going to be doing after the break is um, about love, courtship, and relationships. Um, and then we're going to move on this afternoon to building the, the foundations for service and then tomorrow into how to heal the relationships within the family, etc. Really, all those things have no ability to be accomplished unless we have built a foundation that is completely dedicated to God, which is why we left the first uh, session for this. Follow me, Christ said. This is more than just, you know, deciding to uproot the little bits of the world out of our lives or, or you know, determinedly getting up every morning and reading the Bible because we must. This has to do with to what lengths will you go to be with the king? To what lengths will you leave other things behind if they're separating you from him? Ellen White says in Testimonies, Volume 9, page 181, we have not six patterns to follow, nor five. We have only one, and that is Christ Jesus. Isn't that encouraging? You go into the Christian bookstore, and, and you can find tremendous uh, resources there, correct? But you go into the Christian bookstore, and you see oh, books upon books upon books that you know, are, you know, help you with this issue, with that issue, with the other issue. And in reality, you get the scriptures, and they fit between your fingers. And it's the mind of God. And it's enough to solve all the problems in all the relationships or all the world forever. And you wouldn't think you know, that the comprehensive encyclopedia on you know, the world's issues would be, be stacks of volumes, but actually not. It can fit between our fingers because that is the mind of God and it has power in our lives. We have only one example to follow and that is Christ Jesus. To what lengths will we go to accompany the king? In our families, in our own personal lives, as young people, as we are, as we are you know, um, thinking about a family someday in the future, godly families that can transform the world do not just happen by accident. They don't just come up they have to be intentional, and we have to build those um, foundations now by following the king now. To what length are we willing to go to make sure our future home follows, or if you, if you have you know, a home currently, follows the pattern of Christ? We don't have to go and open up all the books in the Christian bookstore. We can open up one book. Those, those books can certainly be helpful, but we can open up one book and find one pattern. And if we follow after that one pattern, we will receive victory. 
and have beauty in our lives. You know, I have to be perfectly honest. When I read open up the Bible, I find tremendous realities there that the Bible speaks of as just like, you know, plain fact as if, you know, there's never going to be any, there doesn't have to be swings. You know, some days we're just on fire for God and other days we're like, eh. the Bible says you can have consistency. There doesn't have to be the you know, little roller coaster effect in our walk with God. These things don't have to happen. We don't have to have fear. We don't have to have worry. The Bible presents all these things and we're like, yeah, that's great. Then why is it still in my experience? The word of God can become real within us if we go to it. So if I look and see that, you know, all the realities of the Bible have not become reality in Natasha's life. Where do I have to go? Christ is the word become flesh. He is the Bible lived out. Well, the Bible is actually a description of him, but, you know, it works either way. So when we take the word of God and it comes into our lives and becomes a part of us, it's the same way. We can live the life that Jesus lived because that would be the word come into our little frames and lived out before the world. So I think of the word follow me. Just recently, earlier this year, I was in, we were in Bolivia for four weeks, five weeks, something like that. Um, and it was, it was a blessed experience. It was our first time in South America, so we really enjoyed it. And as we were down there, um, the first section of our time we were speaking um, on a really, really busy schedule. And by the time I was done with the first two weeks, two and a half weeks in Bolivia, I was absolutely exhausted, wiped out. I was like, oh, I need some time to recover. And I was going to my, the Bible and I was like, Lord, you can give me strength to continue this. And he did give us strength to get through the speaking portion of our, our trip there. And then we stayed, stayed there some extra time so we could work on the book we're writing. And on the second portion of the time, we were not actively speaking. We were still speaking on the weekends, but during the week we had off and we were working on our book. And, um, the one day I was having some extra devotional time, just reading, praying, studying the Bible, thinking. And I, I started thinking about, you know, the direction my life is headed and my priorities, my goals, my education, blah, 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 blah. And for the most part, I'm a really driven girl and I have these things figured out, you know, what I want to do. And that particular day, I was like, oh, you know, do I have all these things right? You know, is this the way I'm supposed to be going? And, and I'm, not, I'm not accustomed to thinking, you know, uncertainly, so it was kind of disconcerting for me. And the, the more I thought about it, the more perplexed I became, and my mind was really just going down the wrong track. But as I was thinking about all these things, it was like God came and tapped on my heart. You know, I was like, Mom, I'm perplexed, I told her. I was in the room with her. We were both working on our book. I was like, Mom, I'm perplexed. She was like, about what? I was like, you know, about you know, my education and all these things that I'm doing, and you know, am I doing the right thing, and blah, 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 blah. I'm speaking out all these little doubts to her. And she's like, well, you know, actually, God already has a plan for your life, so if you just follow that, you'll be fine. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And through her words, it was like God was tapping on my heart and being like, you know, remember me? Do, you know, don't I have some ideas here? And first it was like, oh, phew, God has an idea. I'll be fine. Just need to follow it. He'll show me in his time. But then the other side of my heart was like, oh my God, what if he asked me to do something like really unorthodox? Great. You know, what if he asked me to do something that's going to be like really, as you know, Chad said last night, socially awkward or something like this. And I'm kind of stewing over this and I'm like, Lord, you know, I, I could offer some suggestions. And he, he's like, really unorthodox, really awkward, to what length will you go to follow the king? If it's socially awkward, are we going to let the king go do it himself? 
while we, you know, hang back with the crowd. If the king is in the street, where is the servant? In the palace chilling? I don't think so. The servant is with the king. And so if our king is, is, is coming to this earth to get, receive his kingdom, which he has already gotten the claims to by his life and death. But if Christ's uh, ministry currently is the, is the ministry of the cross, then the servant does not need to have the scepter and the little, and the little throne the servant has the cross too, and he was reminding me of that. Now, I'm not saying that God is always going to ask us to do something you know, socially awkward, obviously not. At times, he does ask us to do those things. But the question is, what lines will we go in our family, in our relationships, in all these different things? Are we willing to let those things go so we can be with the king? I'm going to read a, a scripture just briefly. 1 Corinthians 3, 18 through 23. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in the world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise that they are vain. Therefore, let no man glory in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours and ye are Christ's and Christ is God's. Are we willing to pay the price? receiving that if we are then we can build that foundation now in our youth then we can build it in our relationships we can build it in our future homes and our lives can be used by god to change the world if we are willing to truly follow the world changer so let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter as you have heard what we have shared this morning from matthew chap from mark chapter 8 we covered the aspects of devotion of surrender taking up our cross and following him. And what's the point of this whole thing? We find it in verse 35 and 36. For whosoever shall save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. You know, if we decide as young people that we want to gain the entire world and we lose our soul, what will we have gained? And it's a very significant decision for us to face. I don't have time to go into my entire story of how, when I was a young person, what were the things that I wanted to gain? What did I want to have? But when we look at what matters the most, this text says it all. If you want to save your life, you lose it. The world considers this to be foolishness. If you want to gain the whole world, you grab it for every gusto you have. But instead, what we know is what matters is what matters eternally. The question is, for us, what does it take to be ready? It takes time to seek. But you know, knowledge is not enough. We must then choose to surrender our lives based on the knowledge of his love for us. It will result in us living lives based on the word of God and not on the world's viewpoint. We will follow him. And we will live lives that will seem to the world to be foolishness. But it will result in eternal life for those that believe. So let us be ready, for he shall reward every man according to his works. Shall we bow our heads? Heavenly Father, help us to grasp a hold of these truths and let us to make them a part of our lives that we may gain what you would have us to gain. And that when we look back, we will see not only how you have led, but how you have led us into the kingdom of heaven. 
Thank you for your promises which are real. Help us to grasp them, hold them dear, and follow you wherever you lead. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.